also a slight element of a, a thriller as well. There's a, um, and maybe it's a, a thriller sort of slightly more off the heart of something like Cormac McCarthy. It's sort of twisting a bit wonky that um, the, the perhaps the, the central scene uh, encounter happens about halfway halfway through. I was wondering maybe if would you like to Yeah, yeah. The the, the rock, rock, yeah. yeah. Okay, so at this point, <clears throat> I told you that um, that Pierre has to go out into the world and, and gather the experiences and, and tools that are necessary to its mission on behalf of Stella. And one of the things he's done is he's he went out to um, to Colorado and um, he met a woman there who was called the the. I forget exactly. She's never named, but she's just kind of a sad lady who's done too much meth, and she has no place to sleep. And so he lets her sleep in his hotel room, and he doesn't. He just gives her the bed, and he sleeps on the couch, and and she gives him a rock that she said will be lucky for him. And um, so then on his return, he's hitchhiking, and he gets a ride with. Um, a guy named Shane, who is our villain, and he's got, is talking about having tens of thousands of dollars worth of money, and Pierre is just kind of not really listening and just thinks that, that, that Shane is kind of a, a loudmouth. Um, but, so, Pierre is hitchhiking, and Shane picks him up, and then, at the end of the ride, I'm going to read that part, um, Pierre's backpack was then riding along in the bed of the pickup. In violation of a fundamental rule of hitchhiking, which is not to get separated from anything you don't want to lose. The end of the ride showed the reason for the rule. When they came to the turnoff for the highway that Pierre would take the 70 miles to shale, the driver went halfway up the exit ramp and stopped there on the shoulder. Uh, Why don't you just pull up to the stop sign? I'll get out there, said Pierre. No thanks, this is fine. Pierre looked at across at the driver, thinking he'd not understood. Uh, you, you've got to go there anyway. Yeah, I don't care. It, it, it's just right up there, said Pierre. And the driver turned in the seat, set his back to the door, and kicked Pierre in the shoulder. Get the fuck out of my truck, he said. Well, okay, but it seems goddamn small after I gave you gas money. And don't forget your stuff. And once he said that, Pierre saw his mistake. Still, there was nothing to do but get out. He opened the door and began to step down and the truck took off, throwing him on the pavement. But then the driver made a mistake of his own. Instead of leaving as fast as he could, he stopped a little ways off and looked back through the glassless window and yelled something. Pierre could not tell what, but it seemed to end with the word fool, which was hard to argue with under the circumstances. The backpack held nothing of value, but Pierre hated the thought of the thief getting the paper plates with the drawings. This has been done by his cousin's children. And so he jumped to his feet, took the lucky rock from the pocket of his coat, wound up, and threw the rock at the truck. Sometimes things happen that seem to defy the second law of thermodynamics, which states that all systems move toward disorder. (laughs) Once Pierre had dropped a lighter on the sidewalk, and it landed, standing up. Another time, lying in bed with Stella, he asked what she would do if he could toss a quarter across the room and into a coffee cup, sitting on the dresser, and she told him, and he threw the coin, and it went in the cup. 
<laughs> and now the pickup began to move, tires spinning for a hold on the pavement, but it didn't matter, because the rock in its flight seemed to know what it was meant to do, and it followed a low arc and tailed off, going through the window frame and hitting the driver. The truck went on up the ramp for a short while, losing speed, and then veered west and down a grassy embankment, where it rolled for a while, missed some trees, hit another one, and stopped. Spellbound, Pierre walked down the bank and through the trees to the truck, where the driver lay partly on the seat and partly in the footwell under the dashboard. Pierre watched him a while to make sure he was breathing, though he had no idea of what he would have done if he were not. Then he got his pack from the truck bed and went up, and pulled the latch beneath the steering wheel and opened the hood. His thought was to tear out the ignition wires, but their location was not as obvious as he had hoped. But while surveying the various webs of wires, he saw a package that had been secured with duct tape behind a battery. He pulled off the tape and took the package from the engine well. It was a paper sack folded over and bound with more tape. When he got that off and opened the bag, he found that it was full of faded green bills bundled by ink-stained rubber bands. Pierre thought for a short while and then opened his pack, pushed everything down, laid the sack of money in on top. Then he went back to the sleeping driver, pulled the keys out of the ignition and flung them into a beam field and walked away. He put the pack on his shoulders and went up the exit ramp. He walked for several miles under the light-banded sky, and eventually a man driving a Royal Crown truck stopped to give him a ride. So that's the the first encounter with Shane. I like the idea of things moving towards order, but through a rock thrown accurately through. Yeah. I mean, order may be the collision of the rock and Shane's head. I mean, we don't really know, you know. The, the time I sort of realised that this was not the usual novel is, is when this or this sort of moment is, is predicted mm-hmm. fairly, fairly early on, um, <clears throat> as though some, certain things that were, were going to happen in, in the plot were, right. were kind of plotted um, I was wondering about the, 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 the role that fate plays in in this in this story it's, I mean it, well <clears throat> it put me more in mind of, sort of Greek drama or something there's, 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 yeah. we kind of know what's going to happen I saw you know I saw that and you know I thought like that's it reminded me of that one of the other, one of the other things I wanted to do was to write a tragedy you know to write a, a, a thing where you know Pierre's innate you know uh, Characteristics, his failures, and his, his positive aspects kind of set him up for for disaster, you know. And I and I did that as much as I could, you know. I couldn't. I mean, as you know, if you get to the end of the book, you know, there's a little bit of a twist on the on the tragic. But you're all going to have to buy the book. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, but yeah. So I mean, it's. Um, I thought. You know, whenever something happens, whatever brought you to this moment, you know, you could look at, you know, I don't know, hundreds and, you know, maybe thousands of moments that if they hadn't have happened that way, you wouldn't be here, you know, or me, you know. So it seems to me that in any story, there are, there are all these turning points. Most people can't see them coming, and that's why we value the soothsayer or somebody like Stella who can sort of, you know, figure out what's going to happen, you know. Um, but... And then the other thing that I thought was interesting, and I don't really lean on this, but I was very aware of it, was that, of course, they're trapped in in like a faded series of events. They're in a novel, (laughs) and I, you know, it's like you can't get away from the print. You know, you can't get away from the text, and so that's like was a sort of um, uh, 
just an awareness I had of, of the, the way that the form and the content were sort of, you know, I don't know, working together maybe. What I was going to ask is, is the book to some extent about your own, you wondering about your own creative imagination, the kinds of characters? As you say, every character is fated because you're making decisions for them and you might trick yourself to sort of have... Yes, true. I mean, but the one thing, I mean, and I think you see this particularly in the, the you know, maybe most in the end of vandalism is that uh, they will sort of talk you out of their fates if you let them, you know, speak. In other words, I try to, I do try to be open to the possibility that things will not happen the way that, you know, that I, that I thought. And I came up, again, talking about the end of the book, I came to the end of the book and it, it was kind of a big, well, will it or won't it, you know? And I had to make that decision based on, you know, sort of what I knew of them and what I felt about them and what it you know, had sort of been predicted by the, you know, what had come before. Are you the kind of writer that doesn't plan? I mean, are you, are you, do you follow your... I don't plan too much, no. I mean, I try to be open to... Um, I'd say this is... I mean, this book is, like, different for me. Driftless Area is different for me because it's got, like, a beginning and middle and end. It does have a plot of a sorts. It is tragic of sorts. It has violence. You know, there's not a lot of violence in, in the rest of my work. There's some, but, but I think this has more. Um... Why was that, do you think? What, what, what? I don't know. I mean, I always thought, like, I one time, you know, I, I uh, met the, the uh, writer, Barry Hanna. You know him? He's from Mississippi in the, in the States um, several times. And he still was a wonderful writer. And, and he said to me at one point, you know, like, you know, I see what you're trying to do with the Midwest, but, you know, where's the violence? <laughs> <laughs> and so, in a sense, I was thinking, like, you know, okay, so I, I will, you know work with some violence here, you know, and um, <laughs> and so I think that was on my mind as well. Um, How about poetry? There's some, there's some poetry in it. Yeah, there's so poetry. Violence and poetry? Hmm? Violence and poetry. Though. There's poetry, they, and I have, you know, done a little poetry before, like in Hunts and Dreams, I think there's some, and um, and, and in Individualism. It's Tennyson, um, wasn't it? Huh? Te it's the title from Tennyson? Oh, Hunts and Dreams, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, there's also, like, oh, your character written Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's some poetry in here, and what I like to say, and it's true, is I figured this is, like, the only way that I would ever get my poetry published is to include it <laughs> as something written by a character in in my books. And what I like, too, is I write them poetry, and then, you know, the reviewers go, like, well, and this person is, like, a lousy poet. And I'm like, wait a minute. Now, hold on. <laughs> Do you want to read some of the poems? Oh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> if I don't make it. <clears throat> okay, well, <clears throat> this is um, one of the things that happens in the Driftless area. And, in fact, it, you know, sort of the big, you know, um, climax begins with this thing that's called... Um, bank robbery days, which is the local town is celebrating the fact that um, some bank robbers attempted to rob the bank in the 30s. Um, and so uh, one of our characters has written, and this is all based on like a town near um, where I grew up was, was um, robbed by Dillinger and Babyface Nelson who they say didn't like to be called Babyface. But, um, and so that's, this is kind of a, uh, I was sort of playing with that notion. And these bankers are no good. They're like, they're incompetent. Um, but anyway, so this character's written this, this poem um, for the bank robbery 
Day's poetry contest, and it's the poem is called Lust for Larceny. <laughs> and he, so this is how it begins. <clears throat> the hapless brothers fell upon the town, set on taking the people's bank down, but every wild dream that you've ever seen was sheer eloquence compared to their scheme. Incapable from start to finish, they barreled ahead with the vault robbery, ignoring somehow the mezzanine guard, who coming down behind the banister managed to fire a tear gas canister. (laughs) (laughs) Carrie's poem ran on for many lines and three pages. It described the robbery and the getaway and ended at a bit of a twist by questioning the town's obsession with bank robbery. (laughs) For I wonder if we are not lame to glory in faded criminal fame. Or, on the other hand, it might just be that we retain a lust for larceny, born in the old times of prehistory, when what you lost was better for me. <laughs> so that's Carrie's poem. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I had fun writing that. You know? <laughs> um, there is a, a movie of the Driftless Theory which you adapted. First, I need to ask, is, is the, did the poetry make... The cuts, is there? I, I don't so. think so. I don't think so. I can't remember actually. I mean, it's been a while since I saw the. the Could you talk? About, I was curious about the the act of adapting your own work. I mean, we we talked at the very beginning about the fact you've yeah. had to reread your own work. Yeah. The last six well, months, I mean, but. I'll I give you a little context here. Uh, like, probably about eight years ago, I was living in um, Pasadena, California, and I got a call from a, a young director. Um, who was interested, the Driftless Area had come out, and he was interested in doing a movie. Um, and so I said, well, you know, uh, let's talk about it. And um, so we began to work on a script way back then, and, you know, worked it through many different versions. We made a short film in the interim of a, a short story of mine called Path Lights, um, and, and kept working on the script, and we got a number of actors who were interested in doing the script, and so very slowly, and it took a long time, you know, we created the script and and developed it to the point where there was enough interest to actually make a film. What's and that happened last, like, last, late summer, last of 2014, I think. What did the director see in, in the book? What, what attracted them to it? And, and was that he an loved easy the, He loved the, the sort of whole, uh, you know, questioning of the ideas of time, you know, because there's a lot about time in here, too, you know, and whether the future has already occurred, you know. Um, he would love that, that aspect of it, and then the stuff about fate, where the things are fated to happen. He, I think he liked the, the humor in it. I think he liked the, the sort of noir elements, mm. you know. Um, and so we worked on a script, and I, I understood from the beginning, and I wanted it to be actually somewhat different from the book because I felt like I'd already written the book, so I didn't want to, you know, sort of write it again. You know, it's like, um, so we, you know, so the script is different from the book, um, and what was shot was different from the script, and then what was cut was different from what was shot. You know, <laughs> so it's like at at several levels of remove, which is fine because I think it needs to be a different thing. You know, what was it like to see? It's very moving to, to see people, um, you know, to, I was on the set uh, a lot of times. Um, it was very moving to see people sort of in, inhabit the characters of Pierre and Stella and Tim Gear. Um, and I'd say Pierre is Anton Yelchin and, and Stella is Zoe Deschanel. Uh, Tim Gear is Frank Langella. Mm-hmm. 
um, John Hawks is Shane, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Alia Shawcott is Carrie. Uh, we just got like a um, yeah, Aubrey Plaza is in there as one of the the sort of the the meth gang people. Um, and um, so it's very moving to see them becoming these characters and doing the the scenes. Um, really touching for some reason. I mean, beyond what I kind of expected. Is it a is it a personal book? I mean, it's, that sounds like it's the stupid question. That is it a personal it, book? Yeah, to you. I mean, it, in a way, because it feels they personal. all. You know, what were you? What was the sort of context for you when you were writing? The Driftless Area. What were you? Because I know you've moved around the states a lot. You've you've worked. I think in the, I was writing the Driftless Area largely in California. I think that's right. Yeah, in California, and um, which it doesn't really. I usually I haven't read. You know, I haven't written a Midwestern novel in the Midwest. I haven't lived there for you know since since I got out of college basically. So that my Midwestern novels have been written on the East Coast or Florida or California, you know. Um, so, yeah, and I was looking there, and I had a couple of years that I thought I could spend, or maybe a year and a half to work on this novel, and then I had to get a job and make some money. Uh, <laughs> what job did you get? Huh? What job? I became an editor at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, which is really fascinating because it's a great place. To, it's great to work in a museum because it's like you're surrounded by wonderful artworks, you know. So. Is it? T- uh, it's, it's perhaps a part of a novelist's, you know, living, working novelist life that we don't talk about enough. Is how do you, how do you survive in a, when publishing is possible? Yeah, you know, I mean, but everybody has to survive, and you know, so I don't. Uh, um, you know, and actually, the times, you know, particularly when I was working at the museum, I was, I was quite enjoying it. Okay. You know. After the the kind of process of finishing the novel, um, you know, when you've written enough novels, sometimes you want to just, you know, work with people too, you know. So it isn't bad, you know. I'm not saying it's what I prefer, but but it's it's got its positive aspects. I mean, I really enjoyed Los Angeles and working there. And then when we worked on the short film and the longer film, that whole collaborative aspect was a really cool thing because it's like you're still doing creative work, but you're working with a team, which you're not as a novelist. You're working in your room with the voices in your head, you know. (laughs) You make it sound (laughs) slightly terrifying, the voices in your head. Um, Are there moments where it's not the easiest job? Um, Oh, it's not the easiest job. My God, no, it's a hard job. Um, It's... um, but it's a constantly engaging job. I mean, it's like when I'm writing, I feel most myself, you know. And when I, if I go for long periods where I can't write, I begin to feel a little bit empty. So, you know, um, it's, I don't know, it's it's strange. It's, it's just very, when you get into a creative life, you know, you sort of need it. You know, you need it the more you do it, you know. So... It is a trade-off when you have to go and work a regular job. Now, the last but year, like I said, everybody, you know, this is a trade-off a lot of us have to make, you know. For the last year you've been in, in Berlin um, working on a new piece yeah, of work. Yeah, a new book. Firstly, um, how, do you, how have you found Berlin? Um, it seems a long way from the... It's good. Well, what happened was, um, you know, I, I uh, got a, um, 
six-month residency at the American Academy in Berlin, which was just come and work. But I also came and work and also was promoting books like in, in various countries because I happen to have a lot coming out. Um, and I really liked Berlin. Um, it's, um, it's a great city. Um, there are a lot of people there from, you know, there's a lot of people there speak English. There's a lot of um, Americans there. There's a lot of people from all countries. Um, it's got a very vibrant art community. It hasn't priced the artists out of the city, you know, and... Um, so yeah, I like it. Um, I've liked it a lot. And then after my residency finished, I went back actually to Iowa, where I had an apartment, and I kind of I closed down that apartment and then came back to Berlin, and I've been there since September. Okay. And what are you working on? Can you talk about it? Or is that? Yeah, I'm working on a new novel. It's um, it's uh, again, I'm trying to to move into something that I haven't really done, which is to deal with a character who is sort of like evil for no reason um, like an Iago-like character you know and um, which I didn't really done because I mean even somebody like Shane in Driftless Area I think you can kind of understand him you can say like he's bad but you know he's got elements of, of decency and so I want to work with the sort of that corrosive uh, influence of a manipulative character and see how a community responds to that you know um and so that's what I mean. And it's kind of very loosely based on the the legend of Faust. Um, and both the legend of Faust, and I'm also very interested in who Faust really was, because he was a real guy, you know. So before all the various... Yeah, yeah, before Goethe got a hold of him, he was an actual character, you know, who lived like in the 15th and early 16th century. But this is Faust in, in the Midwest, or is he... Is he... It'll be set in a kind of a, you know, I think it'll be a small town type of situation. I don't know. You know, because, like, really, I don't say very often, like, that it's the Midwest or that it's a particular state. And and I always like, too, and this is, I, you know, as I have heard from a lot of people, like, well, I don't live in the United States, but I, I've been to small villages, and, boy, I, I can really see these characters, you know, and I, and I think that's good because that's kind of what I want is I want a sort of universality within this kind of stage that I like, which is a sort of minimalist rural <coughs> setting where you can get out to the country easy because I like to include, you know, land and organic things. I think that grounds the work, literally and figuratively. Um, and and I like also situations where everybody knows each other or thinks they do, you know. But does that mean, so with the Grouse County novels, occasionally you need a break? It sounds like you're, this isn't a Grouse. I try to go like, I try to do one and then not, and then one and not, you know. So that's the way it's gone. It's been a Grouse County, then a not, and then Grouse County and, and something else. And is that quite, again, is that quite sort of planned rather than... Yeah, kind of. You know, it's not like <coughs> set in stone, but it's... And I'll say the another thing, too, when you talk about Faust and Iowa, the reason I got onto this whole Faust idea in the first place was... Uh, my younger brother um, and his wife took me to the cemetery that was supposed to be haunted, and the deal was that um, there had been a church there, and the minister sold his soul to the devil, and the devil came and took him away and burned the church down, and, you know, and this had been like in the 19th century. And I said, well, you think this really happened? You know, and, <laughs> um, and you know, it was kind of a no, but it's a, that legend, and I, I, I just thought it was fascinating and I wondered how did this get here and of course you don't look very far into that kind of story before you run into Faust okay. you know 
And was but did being in Berlin and Germany did that help? Uh, it's it's weird. I mean, I was already working on it when I you know when I got connected with the the American Academy. So there wasn't like a definite connection. Like I should be in Berlin to do this because I really don't think you know it's like I wrote the the stuff you know with Irish mythology and in the States. So I really don't think you have to be here, but it's been, I, I definitely know more about Faust, the actual historical okay. figure than I would have otherwise. And has that changed the kind of novel? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's going to have some, I think I want to do some, uh, I, I don't know, I want to get too far okay. into it, but yes, it's changed.